and welcome to We Are History, the podcast about history by people who studied the subject right up to the age of 16. I'm Angela Barnes. And I am John O'Farrell, Lord of Sealand. Remind me, John, how did you get that title? You bought it for me, Angela, off the internet, but that's no different to how most titles in the British Honours system are obtained. Let's be honest. I have a certificate and you have a small debit in your bank account. So I am Lord of Sealand, a title I will pass on to one of my children or maybe my puppy. I haven't decided yet. Before we um, crack on with this episode, John, yeah. we should probably mention um, that I'm riddled with the COVIDs as yes. we're recording this. She's riddled with the COVIDs, she is. I'm riddled with the COVID, so I am recording from home. Johnny's in the studio, um, yeah. but I do sound pretty rough. So we're gonna we're gonna yeah. do my best, but I'm not sounding great. Um, and also, just while I'm here, uh, before we've started, I should remind people to subscribe to the podcast. Well and remembered. While you're listening to it, just give it a little subscribe. Do it to make me feel better, like because I'm not well, I'm poorly. And actually, I think it would help my recovery if you subscribe to the podcast. So that would actually, that's scientifically proven fact. Anyway, let's crack on. What are we talking about, John? We're talking, as it's well, I've mentioned that I'm Lord of Sealand because it's a very nautical oh, themed yes. episode we're doing today, Angela. All about ah, salty sea dogs and it's all shiver my timbers and splice the main brace and all that stuff. You don't know what you're talking about, do you? Not really, no. But that's why I read a book about it. Uh, this week, I've chosen The Golden Age of Smuggling because I wanted to mm. dig a little deeper under the myths we get served up in those period dramas of Cornish men in tricorn hats hiding barrels of rum in caves at Land's End and all that. Sorry, I've just gone into a pole dark reverie. Apologies. <laughs> pole dark reveries. <laughs> uh, it happens to women of my age. Handsome men with sort of lace-up shirts, I know. Oh, John, do you want me to concentrate on this podcast or not? There are villains, I tell you. The book I read was Smuggling in the British Isles by Richard Platt, which I got from the library and then smuggled it home on a network of tunnels known only to me and all the other users of the London Underground. <laughs> nice. Um, yeah, I do think you get a bit carried away, John, but but smuggling it does have this romantic boy's own adventure characteristic to the way we remember it, doesn't it? It's We do think of Poldark. Oh, God, I've gone off yeah. again. And and sort of Jamaica <laughs> in and the defiant local heroes cocking a snook at the tax man. There's a lot of cocking a snook, Angela. There's not much else you can do to a snook in the English language, is there, John? You can cock it and that's you're it, the if we're honest. You're, you're the linguist, Angela. Um, <laughs> I don't even know what a snook is. I think it's your nose, isn't it? Thumbing your nose, cocking a snook. It's the thing you cock. You cock your snoop. Yeah. Yes. Um, yes. Both those examples we give are set in Cornwall. And there's this notion of the Southwest being the centre of this illicit trade in French brandy or whatever. But in fact, the vast majority of smuggling was not in Cornwall. That was far too remote, too hard to get stuff to markets. No decent roads yeah. or trains back then, of course. Now, the real hotbed of smuggling was in Kent and Sussex. I mean, it's sort of obvious, really, isn't it? Because it's nearer to France, nearer to London. That makes much more sense. Plus, there. Yeah, 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 exactly. They're all bloody villains in that part of the world as well, Angela. Kent, full of Baddens, and then Sussex, that's where all the Baddens move when they made a bit of money. I see what you're doing here, John. You're definitely not just saying this because I am born and raised in Kent and now live in Sussex, are you? Oh, are you? I had no idea. Sorry, no uh, offence intended, Angela, at all. I'm, uh, I'm talking centuries ago, obviously. obviously. <laughs> in fact, the idea that smuggling was limited to small gangs of criminals turns out not to be the case. It was a national pursuit, certainly in coastal counties. 
Well, yeah, in coastal counties. I don't think there's a lot of smuggling going on in Birmingham, was there? It's hard to imagine a high-speed no. chase along the Coventry Canal. <laughs> Quite. <laughs> uh, but but all along the south coast, and even up north and in Scotland, smuggling was a huge industry involving thousands and thousands of people. And I guess the thing, Angela, I found most interesting about all of this is what it tells us about attitudes to the law and authority during these centuries. As far as I could ascertain... People who would have gone to church and believed in being good and virtuous had absolutely no problem with helping avoid the tax man and cheating the government out of revenue. So it wasn't just rogue gangs of villains rolling barrels of French brandy up the beach? No, whole villages took part in this process. Hundreds of people would be down on the shore at any one time. It was like Ken in Barbie. Their job literally was beach. And uh, <laughs> at night, they would be carrying illicit goods to hide in not very secret places under their churches or under the pubs or in tunnels in the fields. And what that tells us is that most people had a very different view of what was criminal and what was actually wrong. Right. Just because... The state said it was illegal, didn't make people think you shouldn't do it. The general population made their own decisions about what was right and what was wrong. So the king was saying, as usual, it's just a small minority spoiling it for all the others. And all his subjects were like, no, mate, it's not a small minority. It's it's literally everyone. We're all spoiling it for all the others. (laughs) Exactly. The book I read for this podcast opens with a quote from Adam Smith. A smuggler is a person who, though no doubt highly blamable for violating the laws of his country, is frequently incapable of violating those of natural justice and would have been in every respect an excellent citizen had not the laws of his country made that a crime which nature never meant to be so. That's from The Wealth of Nations. Have you actually read that? No, I'm I'm waiting for the film, Angela. Fair enough. I suppose you have to remember as well what taxation was for back then. It was generally for foreign wars. And if the king and his parliament were waging war on Spain, on France, that was not for the benefit of the ordinary people of England. It was a power struggle at the top. So the poor stayed poor in both countries, whatever was going on on the battlefield. Yeah, the excise duty levied on luxuries goods wasn't paying for your local hospital or your kid's school or your street lighting or getting the bins emptied. And there was, a, there was an emerging state at this point, but it didn't do anything for its citizens yet, apart from maybe stop the French invading and exploiting the people in a different language, but with better cooking. Yeah. Um, so, so, yeah, so there's, like, there's no moral basis for paying tax like there is today. It was just a faraway authority taking money off you for no discernible reason other than they could. And it's like, like spin yeah. the wheel of satire, Angela, like lots of modern things that rip you off and don't give you any much back. That's as far as my satire goes. Brilliant satire, John. <laughs> so so look, how far back are we going? When does smuggling in the British Isles become this big thing? Well, it's as old as tax charged on goods for export and import. And for that, you have to go way back. Angela, have a guess at the year the first tax was charged on goods leaving England. 1275. Well, that's cheating. You're reading ahead in my notes. No, I've just always been very interested in tax revenues on bags of wool, actually. I am a crocheter. (laughs) It was Edward I, nicknamed Longshanks, of course, because he had very long shanks. Um, He (laughs) brought in the first tax on bags of wool in 1275, as Angela amazingly knew, to fund his many wars against (laughs) the Scots, the Welsh and the French. And after that, the duty on goods goes up and down throughout the centuries, depending on however expensive wars happen to be. And English wool was, of course, England's most valuable export at the time. That's why the Speaker of the House of Lords sits on a wool sack, isn't it? It's a symbol of England's wealth. 
Yeah, it's a bit weird, that, isn't it? Does, does, does the country yeah. where they export guano, I know, the Galapagos Islands, does that speaker sit on a bag of bird shit? Yes, they do, actually, John. That's a well-known fact. Yeah. <laughs> I, may, I may bring up that suggestion at the next meeting of the Sealand House of Lords. Anyway, um, <laughs> smuggling really takes off in the British Isles in the 16th and 17th centuries, peaking in the 18th century, and then it drops off quite suddenly for a reason that had never occurred to me, but I thought was quite interesting. Is that a cliffhanger, John? It's a historical cliffhanger. Frankly, I'm quite worried because I don't think a lot of listeners uh, will be able to bear the tension. You know, we've got quite a lot of older listeners to this, John, and they're, they're sitting listening to this podcast thinking, oh my God, this is so exciting, I can't handle it. John isn't telling us until the very end why smuggling dropped off suddenly in the middle of the 19th century. And now they're all skipping straight to the end, John, to find out they're going to miss all this juicy, violent stuff in the middle. Well, I understand their excitement, but stay with it, listeners, because there are some really juicy incidents with people getting quite badly hurt, which is what the punters want. Let's face it, Angela. I wish it weren't so, John, but it is. Let's take a break. So we're back talking about the golden age of smuggling and it was, in effect, a symptom of the beginnings of state building, since before the Bronze Age, you'd had Britons trading back and forth across the English Channel. But then along comes this centralised authority, which says that you can only do that if you give me lots of money. And understandably, people were a little resentful about this. So... They think, no, you're all right, thanks. I think I'll just carry on doing what I was doing before and keep all the money, if that's the same to you. <laughs> yeah. Like, why so, would they? Yeah. I know. It's like, yeah. So you understand it. Uh, so the main commodities to be illegally traded were the items with the highest tax on them, obviously, really. Uh, so it evolved from bags of wool to luxury items, French brandy, tobacco, all the things you still get today at the duty-free shop, with the exception with the exception of the little teddy bear in the pilot's uniform. <laughs> Not much call for those back in the 17th century. No, they did have Toblerone, right? <laughs> Massive yeah. Toblerones were Massive smuggled tobler. back and forth. <laughs> <laughs> Am I right in thinking, John, that one of the major commodities mm. to be smuggled during this time was tea? Yeah, loads of organised crime revolved around the trade in tea. Oh, God's sake, British people, you're obsessed. <laughs> I mean, it's hard to imagine, isn't it, to have organised gangs getting illegal shipments of Lapsong Souchang into the country. <laughs> you order, you're, you're after something harder, pal. I've got some old grey out the back. Oh, and mate, nothing will give you a little pick-up mid-afternoon and that chat with a vicar than a pot of this Darjeeling. Oh, that's good shit, that is. But don't go cutting in no cheap typhoon into it. This is the actual gear quality stuff. I wonder if the people sipping their tea in the country houses of England ever stopped to think about how they were funding organised crime. Shocking. <laughs> yes. It's shocking. Shock, isn't it? Isn't it? There was, of course, stronger stuff coming into the country. The alcohol in smuggled casks was usually very strong with the plan that it be diluted uh, for consumption once it got into England. Uh, in 1811, a smuggler's vessel at Harwich ran aground. And in order that the ship would draw less water, they threw 600 tubs of spirit overboard. And the barrels were rescued and opened by local soldiers who didn't know how pure this alcohol was. And they got stuck into it and four of them died from the alcohol. So that's a bit grim. Oh, my God. Like hardcore whiskey galore. Yeah. That old yeah. film. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God, yeah. Do you remember the Far Show parody of Whiskey Galore? Oh, yeah. Heroin Galore, when all the Scottish <laughs> Islanders are just jacking up and putting tourniquets on their arms and falling back Aww. in drug-addled ecstasy. <laughs> Excellent stuff. Very funny. Uh, other major goods that were traded illegally included lace, 
twine, soap, writing paper. There's a list here of all the illegal goods that were seized at Aberdeen in 1721 from the book. Prunes, raisins, figs, licorice, molasses. <laughs> Somebody was worried about being regular, weren't they? They obviously Angela? had some problems they were trying to solve there. <laughs> yeah, you're eating too many eggs, guys. Less meat and bread and try eating a bit more fruit and vegetables. <laughs> so people grew rich from smuggling these goods into the country, didn't they? They weren't just hiding the odd barrel of brandy down the back of the ship. This was an industrial scale operation. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't just some amateur improvised opportunities. I mean, it was, a, you know, as you say, a massive organised industry. Ships were specially designed and built for smuggling. International networks were set up. So the cost of a large ship was about £2,000. And a wow. ship owner could make this back by making just four smuggling voyages. Wow. And by way of contrast, the king's crews at sea were often second rate in every respect. They were doing the worst posting you could get, acting against other Englishmen. Yeah. Serving in the Navy against their will, poorly paid, poorly fed, whereas the smugglers were highly motivated and skillful at handling their vessels because they're in waters and estuaries that they've chosen to be in and that they know well. Yeah, so the, the smuggler ships were especially designed to be fast enough to outpace the inspection boats from the excise men, but also to be good for concealing illicit cargo. So there were false bottoms, hollow masts. Sometimes tobacco would be compressed and spun and turned into what looked like rolls of rope on the deck. And the inspectors who'd come on board would search the whole ship for tobacco, but just walk right past all these ropes and <laughs> find nothing. Oh, those ropes smell funny. Oh. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it's ingenious, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, there was another story of a tobacco smuggler who put all the tobacco leaves under his all his clothes, but neglected to have a layer in between. And when he started to sweat, the oh, nicotine no. began to seep into his oh, bloodstream geez. in huge amounts. He was like, it was like puffing on twenty huge cigars at once. And he got so dizzy and sick. I think he gave himself away. Oh my god. So, as I understand it, John, there were two ways of landing your goods ashore. One was yes. on a quayside at a regular port where you'd just have to bribe the customs officer to turn a blind eye or worse, sign a false document lying about what you were bringing ashore. Yeah, yeah, that was common enough. But I think the, the method that seems from reading this book to be the most common way was landing stuff illegally under the cover of night on some remote spot, prearranged with the ship's captain. The romantic uh, way. The romantic way, the pole dark way. Let's call it yeah. the pole dark way, the, the Jamaica <laughs> Inn. And this would obviously require secret signals out to sea. Lights shone from the shore, for example. These signals had to be constructed so that they were not seen anywhere on land in case the excise men saw them and rushed to the scene on their horses. So they might be from a cave or from the top of a house where every window except the one facing the sea was covered up. And of course, lights at sea or on land would have been much easier to spot back then. There was no light pollution like we have today. You'd spot a exactly. light quite far away yeah. in the distance. Yeah, yeah. And other signals included, uh, there was one particular farmer riding his white horse along the cliffs uh, at the seaside. That's a great image for the for the yeah. uh, period costume drama, isn't it? Stopping and starting windmills was another one. And if there was no wind, a boy had to climb up the sail to make it move around and use his weight, you know, to, to oh, move God. the windmill. No health <laughs> and safety back then, John. <laughs> no, up you go, lad. Yeah. Um, uh, so all this smuggling was, was led by organised gangs. But when the goods came onto shore, they could call on whole villages to help them get it on on the land and, and into hiding places inland. And at a time of what was great rural poverty, people, of course, would do whatever they could to earn a few extra pennies. And this prospect of a bit of extra employment, be it going up a windmill or whatever, was always yeah. welcome. Yeah, 
But there's also a slight sense of socking it to the man, as they didn't say in 18th century Hampshire, (laughs) uh, of putting two fingers up to the rich and landed gentry. It's felt like a victimless crime, not one that you could feel too bad about. A bit like, do you remember when the record companies tried to make you feel guilty about taping things at home? Oh, that's right. There's a huge skull and crossbones on the inner sleeve of a record and a message saying, home taping is illegal and it's killing music. Oh, go away. No, mate, we're not buying it. If I want to take my mate's copy of Hunky Dory and save myself a few quid. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) There's uh, less money for the record companies, so what? Yeah, it was like that. Technically illegal, but everyone did it. A law more honoured in the breach than the observance, to quote the crankies. (laughs) Or it might be Shakespeare, I can't remember. Might be Shakespeare. But if the excise men did happen to discover the smugglers red-handed, then they had hundreds of people to arrest or charge. And they were often from the same communities themselves. So they often deliberately failed to catch anyone. Uh, If they did try to step in, that's when things would turn really nasty. Yep, because like pretty much every offence back then, the punishment was death. Stealing a loaf of bread, death. Coughing on a Sunday, death. Using your neighbour's unsecured Wi-Fi, death. There were literally (laughs) hundreds of capital offences on the statute books. Here's a couple, John, that aren't jokes, right? You could be sentenced to death for impersonating a Chelsea pensioner, death. Scribbling on Westminster Bridge, death. You wouldn't do it twice, Angela. I mean, you've got to teach people. Yeah. They've got to learn, John. They've got to learn. (laughs) So if the punishment for smuggling was the same as murder, you were thinking, hmm, this local excise man has just caught me. Should I, A, admit my guilt and face the punishment that is my due, or B, kill him? So it's sort of inevitable that smuggling should become a violent business with clubs and pistols always at hand. And poor excise men were often beaten up as a precaution. And the poor customs officer was always massively outnumbered. They were really badly paid. Everyone hated them. They were basically the traffic wardens of their day. (laughs) Exactly. There are stories of customs officers being thrown down a well and then having been killed by having rocks dropped on them. They had their throats slashed or their brains blown out with a blunderbuss. It's brutal. Yeah. And another method of dealing with them was to kidnap them and just drop them off in France with no money or food, leave them to their own devices to make their own way home again. That sounds like the basis of a sort of reality TV show. No, I had French exchanges a bit like that. (laughs) (laughs) Have I I moaned about my French exchanges on this podcast before? No, but I've got a feeling you're gonna. (laughs) So I went to one family and while I was there, the mother tried to kill herself. Oh God, no, you have talked about that before. That's awful. I learned that Sasuasi Day is a reflexive verb. So that oh was good. Oh, my God. Keep it light, John. And then another time, yeah, I was uh, put on this boat. They're going to talk about, you know, uh, sailing across France. We sailed across the Bay of Biscay and I lay on the side of a boat for three days puking up. And they're just saying, oh, c'est pas vrai, je n'ai pas malade. Oh, my God. And it's like... It's hell. It's hell, Angela. My parents thought it was good for me. Well, I, on a German exchange trip, once had to drive with my German exchange partner and her boyfriend, just the three of us, four hours to go and watch Dire Straits in Cologne. So I think I had it worse. (laughs) Um, So although we said these crimes were carried out with the consent of the large majority of the country, they did emerge a criminal network of smugglers who were extremely violent and unpleasant, like a sort of 18th century mafia gang who would torture and murder informants or people who wouldn't cooperate. Yeah, I mean, perhaps there were times when villagers took their work because they were too frightened to say no. The Hawkehurst gang were the the Corleone family of their day. And it's funny when you read the names of these village, like 
Yeah, the, the Mayfield in Sussex, which is like this quaintest little English village today. And back then it was all throat slashing and horse dealing and hanged smugglers left to rot in the gallows. It's so weird. Like, I grew up going to visit places like Hawkehurst for a lovely Sunday afternoon drive. Like the idea <laughs> the that it was this gang, yeah. sort of bloody place of violence is really weird. Yeah. That's funny, isn't it? The government uh, did bring forward legislation to try and combat this booming trade and all the crime that came with it. Yeah, there was the Hovering Act of 1718, which I nearly read as Hoovering Act, but that's well, that something very different. that would have been good as well. <laughs> yeah. The Hovering Act of 1718 made it illegal for vessels smaller than 50 tonnes to wait within six miles of the shore. So it's a bit hard to enforce that in an age when you were dependent on the wind. It's like, I'm trying to leave, but I've got no engine. <laughs> Your hovering, hoovering mix-up reminds me of um, Kate Robbins telling me when she was on uh, Crossroads that they were filming a scene with someone hoovering the stairs when they were filming and they couldn't hear the dialogue. And then they said, can you move her back a bit more? Can I move back more? And in the end, they said, can we have a look at the script? We said, oh, she's hovering in the background. Oh, no way. <laughs> yeah, that's actually no way. That's that's she filmed it wrong. Any other acts, Angela, you want to tell me about? So there was the Act of Indemnity, which gave a free pardon to a smuggler who revealed the names of his collaborators. So grasses. Um, yep. But of course, this only increased the risk of death to anyone who did that. There was no witness protection programme available back then. So it wasn't exactly yeah. an attractive prospect. Yeah. And if the authorities did manage to confiscate the goods, the smugglers would arm themselves and recruit a few extra hands and then just break into the customs house and take it all back again. <laughs> so basically, the customs men were acting on behalf of a government that had no consent of the people. There was a genuine sense that they were entitled to take back what they thought was rightfully theirs, whatever the punishment in law wasn't about that. Yeah, and if prosecutions were brought, then often juries would fail to find the defendants guilty, either because they didn't accept the criminality of what had been done, or perhaps they were intimidated by the possibility of violence from the gangs. Who knows? Yeah. So the, the, so the government sort of stepped up its game, and they established the so-called water guard along the south coast, a force to catch smugglers. Wow. And our modern-day coast guard can trace its roots right back to this force. Oh, wow. Um, but back then, pretty much everyone employed to fight the smugglers was hated, useless, demoralised, unmotivated, embarrassed, and usually drunk. It's a bit like being a Conservative minister today, Angela. Oh, very nice. With that bit of satire, let's take a break. <laughs> So we're back talking about the golden age of smuggling and the smugglers have just got their contraband onto land. There's the whole business of distribution, hiding it, getting it out there. Yeah, absolutely. Like just getting it to the land was the beginning, wasn't it? Hiding places were ingenious. It could be as audacious as they wanted because it was an industry that had the support of most of the community. Publicans would welcome illegal barrels of brandy and of course they always took their cut. And vicars would turn a blind eye to illicit goods being kept in the vaults of the church. It was, they were all complicit. Yeah, in one church, they hid barrels in the vaults of the church. And during one service, it began to rain brandy indoors, which probably convinced the parishioners that there definitely was a god. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, now, caves are always presented as a sort of traditional hiding place in these period costume dramas. Rugged Cornish coastlines riddled with secret cave networks known only to locals with dodgy West Country accents and swinging lanterns. Was it like that? <laughs> 
Well, in fact, I remember playing as a child at a, 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 on the coast in South Cornwall, and there was this cave hacked out of the slate that went back quite a long way and had a couple of chambers inside, and that was said to be a smuggler's cave. Um, but in fact, smuggling was sort of too widespread and on too large an industrial scale to depend on caves. As we said before, Cornwall and Devon, not really the centre of the smuggling industry because of the expense of getting smuggled goods to markets inland. But tunnels were dug by the coast in Kent and Sussex and Essex. These were tunnels dug at an angle into fields that led to one great central chamber for hiding goods. And some of them have since collapsed, haven't they, in the intervening centuries? Yes. And barrels of decomposed tobacco were found in the sand dunes in Lincolnshire in the past century. Wow. And uh, Bishop's Canning in Wiltshire, some smugglers uh, had some tubs hidden at the bottom of a pond. And they went, when they were caught one night raking the village pond by the excisemen, they feigned stupidity and pointing <laughs> at the reflection of the moon on the pond, they said they were trying to get the cheese out of the water. And then the educated man rode on his way, feeling very superior to these simple country yokels as they got their illicit goods out of the pond, earning themselves 10 times what that bloke did. That's lovely. That feels <laughs> good, that it's it, good, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So their distribution systems called for more subterfuge and more corruption. And there was, of course, no police force back then. So it was soldiers and government officials who were used sporadically and not very effectively. Um, but horses and donkeys were maintained at various staging posts by people whose job didn't seem to require them to keep 20 horses. Yes, it's like, why do you need 20 horses yeah. to run a pub? Well, I've got to collect the pickled eggs and the dry roasted peanuts, obviously. <laughs> so one ingenious smuggler trained his horse for when he was stopped by the authorities. I love this. Because when he shouted, whoa, the horse was trained to start to gallop. So he could shout back to them, no, I'm trying to stop my horse. Whoa, he's got a mind of his own. He really has. Just doing what he likes. That's I love brilliant. that. It's ingenious, isn't it? Yeah. They generally chose old bridleways that were off the main route between the towns and their routes are still visible a number of names of lanes and roads across the country today called smugglers lane or whatever seems like a bit of a giveaway doesn't it really <laughs> <laughs> um and they and they wore masks of course to conceal their identities and and if asked they just said they were worried about catching covid i guess yeah wish i um, wore a bloody mask <laughs> so maybe perhaps that's why we bracket smugglers with pirates and highwaymen, romantic villains who may have been on the wrong side of the law, but were courageous and men of adventure. Rudyard Kipling, I think, has got a lot to answer for. He wrote a famous poem which helped cultivate the romantic myth. Angela, do you want to give us a little excerpt of that? Five and twenty ponies trotting through the dark. Brandy for the parson, backy for the clerk. Laces for the lady, letters for a spy. And watch the wall, my darling, while the gentlemen go by. Yes. I remember learning that at school. Did you? School. Yeah. Yeah. Watch the wall, my darling. It's a reference to the habit of never looking round when a convoy of smugglers rode through the town. Yeah. You didn't want to have to lie to the authorities and say you'd seen nothing. Far safer just to literally see nothing. Yeah. And during the Napoleonic Wars, they developed something that is sadly a bit more familiar to us today, which was people smuggling. Yeah. Um, British prisoners of war were smuggled back to Britain or captured French soldiers were secretly taken back across the channel out of sight of the authorities. Yeah, this obviously wasn't on the scale that we see it happening today, but I thought it was worth including just to point out yeah. that human trafficking or people smuggling is nothing new. Networks that have been built up for barrels of brandy or whatever uh, were now being used for people. 
Yeah. yeah, and it was the violence of some of the smugglers that gradually turned public opinion against the practice as people came to see that they were gangsters, not entrepreneurs. Yeah. And even if they were imprisoned, a gang would turn up at a prison, smash their way in and release their comrades. And it became clear that the authorities were up against an entire alternative power base. They had a lot of power. Yeah, but what was it that finally did for large-scale smuggling in the middle of the 19th century? Well, the thing that ended it was a big switch towards free trade in 1846. Smuggling fell away when there was much less money to be made from it because the duties on goods were massively reduced or abolished altogether. So 1846 was a really big year in the making of modern Britain. The boring old repeal of the Corn Laws... Oh, that again. ...do you have to revise for that exam at school, even though it seemed too dull to get past page one. It wasn't just about the price of corn. It was a watershed that turned the economic system on its head, helped fight the famine in Ireland, and best of all, split the Tory party for a generation. Absolutely. So free trade, which became official government policy, that is what the smugglers have been doing for hundreds of years. And in the end, the government just decided that was the best way to conduct business anyway. Lower tariffs and protectionism, and Britain would be richer due to increased sales of goods abroad that would be cheaper if huge duties were not levied on everything. Yeah, so that's the big twist at the end of the episode, Angela. The smugglers won. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> the, the, the government got their policy from the ruffians rolling the barrels up the Cornish beaches. I thought you said it wasn't all ruffians on Cornish beaches. I don't know. I wasn't really listening, Angela. Fair enough. Um, <laughs> of course, that's not to say smuggling completely ended after 1846, but it ceased to be a massive industry that it had been during its golden age. But anyway, that is the golden age of smuggling, Angela. To any yes. kids listening who are interested in a career in smuggling today, talk to your careers teacher at school, hard drugs, enriched uranium, other weaponry. <laughs> they all need sneaking past the customs and excise at the airport. It's exciting work and you get to meet lots of really nice people. Please don't listen to John. He's talking rubbish again. <laughs> Ever done much smuggling, Angela? Ciggers in your suitcase? Perfume poured into your thermos flask. I'm far too much of a good girl for that job. I can't even. I don't. If I see a police car in my rearview mirror when I'm driving, I start panicking. Even if I'm not breaking the law in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> well, when I was a kid, uh, we used to go on holiday to France, and in the back of our estate car across France, you know, we'd lie down. And uh, on the return journey, my dad filled up the bottom of our sleeping bags with bottles of wine. And then, as we went through the customs, he shouted, "Okay, boys, pretend to be asleep," and we'd close our eyes, and the customs officer would look in the window and just wave us through. <laughs> I wonder if you'd grown up to become a massive drug smuggler, your parents would have thought, well, I guess we gave him all the encouragement we could. We're so proud of him. <laughs> oh, uh, and that's it then for the golden age of smuggling. Thank you all for your lovely reviews, your five-star ratings, your messages. We really do appreciate it, don't we, John? We do, we do. Um, and we want to thank some of our Patreon supporters. Yes, absolutely. We give a few shout outs by name. Don't forget, if you want to join our Patreon, you get uh, the episodes a week early, ad free, plus other merch and other little bits and bobs. So do look that up on patreon.com slash history. But for now, let's do some shout outs. John, do you want to take it away? Thanks to Faith Elsegood. Phoebe Pickering. Susan McCarthy. Wendy McRae-Simpson. And Timothy Hutton. Thank you to all you guys. And sorry if you didn't get your name read out, but we're grateful to every one of you. And you'll get there eventually. You just have to keep listening. Um, 
I, I apologise once again for my uh, voice and demeanour in this podcast. I know I've got an annoying voice at the best of times, but this is quite something. Uh, so apologies for that, but we got through it. That's the main thing. So uh, we'll be back <laughs> next week with another gripping episode. Uh, but uh, in the meantime, have a great week, everyone. And thanks for listening. Bye. Your History is written and presented by Angela Barnes and John O'Farrell, with audio production by me, Simon Williams. The lead producer is Anne-Marie Luff, and the group editor is Andrew Harrison, with artwork by James Parrott. We Are History is a Podmasters production. <laughs> <laughs>